Assalamu alaikum. I'm Sabah Fatma and you're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. So today we're talking to Dr. Nurgis Heather, who's a core faculty at Walden University in the College of School of Education. Assalamu alaikum, Nurgis. Uh, Walaikum salam, Sabah. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, happy to do it. Thank you. Uh, so I understand you are a Chicago native. I am. I was born and raised there, and I was there for a very long time before I moved to St. Louis about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I like Chicago, but I'm not a fan of the cold. <laughs> but yes, it's a, they have wonderful music, so I have to say. It's just a little bit colder there compared to St. Louis. <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know. To me, it seems like the wind is like, oh my goodness. Um, yeah, in the city. Yeah. So is that where you got your master's and your PhD as well? Yes, yes, in Chicago. So from Concordia University. And um, so my undergraduate was at University of Illinois, Chicago. Oh, and what did you get your master's and PhD in? Well, I have my master's in actually in psychology and I have another master's in uh, educational leadership. And um, and my EDD actually is in uh, educational leadership as well. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Um, and. Uh, at what point, I know that you got married through grad school, at what point through your academic journey did you get married? I was working on my first master's and that's when I got married. Okay, so, yeah. oh wow, so that's pretty early on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for me it was because I was in the middle of studying and working, um, but, you know, alhamdulillah, everything worked out and, you know... I finished after I got married. <laughs> so you so you continued to study after marriage, I guess. Was that like a given with your in-laws, your husband, or was that more of a negotiation, a conversation had to happen about it? Uh, for my master's, getting married, it was a given. It was understood. Um, then, uh, you know, uh, my husband and I, we discussed the, you know, the path for a doctorate, and that was a bit longer. It was an investment of time. Um, obviously, and money. And so, so he was very supportive from from the get go. Oh, Alhamdulillah. Because I know for for a lot of women, uh, especially, you know, young Muslim women whose parents are worried about getting them married off. Um, the, you know, the, the, the women quite rightfully so worry whether they'll be continue, they'll be able to continue studying afterwards. Um, and you're saying it's doable? Uh, definitely doable. I mean, if you have the support available, you know, um, it's very doable. And, you know, I had my first son uh, while, uh, while in my, um, I think, initial years of my doctorate and my, you know, my parents were very helpful. My mother helped watch him. So I had that strong support system. Yeah. So I guess I do think it's doable. Yeah. If so I guess it, it's done. Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, I, I, you know, this is a theme I do see reoccurring in many of the stories is that you have to have a strong support system and then you have to have an understanding with your spouse who has to be supportive enough for it. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I would say like maybe to, to the younger women, please have that conversation early on um, so that they know what is important to you. Um, and so, uh, so you said you had your first kid uh, through grad school. 
Um, and uh, I know you have uh, how many kids you have uh, in in total? I have three sons. Oh, mashallah! And then when mashallah. did you have the second and the third? Was it after graduation, or? Well, my second son uh, was born right before I began my dissertation, and my, my third son was born much later. So um, after I moved to St. Louis. Okay. Oh, wow. And uh, so I, you know, just to sort of give the listeners an idea of what I wanted to talk about with you today. Um, I know you personally in real life as well, and I know your second son, who's such a beautiful, beautiful uh, boy, uh, very kind, very loving, um, you know, one of the uh, most thoughtful people that I do know. Um, I know that uh, very early in his life, he received a particular diagnosis uh, that impacted your entire family. Um, would you feel uh, good about sharing that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so when, you know, so my second son's name, Ran, uh, Ran Hyder, and he was born, like I said, it was a, it was like a, right before I started working on my dissertation, I was taking my comprehensive exams. And so when he was born uh, at 12 weeks age, he was uh, diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. So it's a type of muscular um, cancer. And it was obviously quite uh, shocking to my husband, myself. We were, we just didn't really understand it more. So it took time understanding it, um, educating ourselves about it, going to the right hospital, doctors, figure, you know, that whole phase was just, I don't know where it went, but it was very, um, it's blurred if you think about it. But um, back then, uh, you know, you just, um, you took it one step at a time. So first thing was immediately go to the doctor, go to an oncologist, let them uh, tell you what the next steps are and to understand, focus what it entailed, because we really didn't know that this was like basically a long-term type of a treatment you know longer meaning it's not going to be six weeks it's going to be a year or it's going to be two years depending on you know um the um the level of uh you know the cancer the type of cancer etc so i think in, initially it was just very um um shocking to us it was just trying to understand and then we had um, my oldest son, who was three and a half years old, and so just trying to figure things out. How um, how did it impact uh, the older son, with the parents struggling through this this news at that time? Um, you know, I'd like to say it didn't. Um, you know, I think it was very minimal, uh, and honestly, because you know, while uh, you know when he was born, I was obviously studying and then I was working full time and my mom, uh, you know, she, she took the reins and she took care of him and she was very, um, she was more <laughs> primary caregiver, I would say, than I was. And um, so he was very attached to her. So that, that, um, that concern wasn't really there. And for, you know, Rizwan always was sort of uh, mature. He was, you know, beyond his years and he really, um, was very protective of his little bro brother. He wasn't envious or jealous because all of a sudden we're now giving him, you know, this this little baby all right. this attention as opposed to to him. But I think it was good because he just continued in that 
um, being with my mom, it was, it wasn't much of a, I would say an adjustment for him because it was like pretty much doing the same thing. Right, right. So again, like the theme of like having a strong support system comes up, which is that, you know, if you have, if you have family members who form that village, uh, there's less, uh, there's less impact, uh, traumatic impact on, on other family members. So what did the treatments entail for the second born then for Rian? Uh, well, then they had sat us down. First, we had to have surgery, see where it was at. Um, and so the surgery took its toll. And then you they mapped out a chemotherapy plan for a year. Then it concluded with the, the last month of treatment with radiation. So it wasn't, um, he was in and out of the hospital. It wasn't as lengthy. It was pretty... Um, I mean, he was admitted a few times, uh, but he just, he kind of was mostly at home and we had to uh, follow whatever they were telling us to do with him. And we were doing just that. But if he got sick in between, which happens with um, this type of treatment, then he would go and he would be admitted, he'd be treated, and then he would be uh, sent home. So that was kind of on and off. So that sounds like a lot of time um, commitment, a lot of emotional commitment. Um, Yeah. uh, I, I can imagine, you know, going in and out, you're in a constant state of fear. Was Is that, would, that, would you say that's the case? Yes, yes. As It would be like for any parent. It was a constant uh, state of fear. It's also a state of not knowing, um, right. not understanding it fully, because you don't have the education. You kind of live in this bubble, and all of a sudden this thing happens to you. And you're like, you're in this whole other different world and you're getting to know this whole other different world because you just lived in your, here's work, here's, you know, marriage, here's home, here's one child. And then all of a sudden this whole thing happens. So you're adjusting to two different things. Right. And um, I suppose you were also then exposed to other parents who are also going through something similar, um, which would be that other world that you're in, in the hospital. Um, So, I mean... I would have conversations with other moms. I would see there with their child. Um, but, you know, when honestly, when I was in the hospital, I wouldn't feel as alone. Like, like when you're in your community, you don't really see this type of thing happening, right? So it's not right. like, you, you know, you could relate to somebody at the hospital, like what they're going through. I know what I'm going through and we're going through something similar together. Right. So that, that community is very important as well. Um, yeah. And so I, uh, I know we spoke about this, uh, you know, you know, through our friendship, you've, you've told me that you, um, you kept working through the diagnosis, through the various treatments and such. Uh, I know that in many communities, um, some people are pretty harsh with the mom guilt. And, um, and I, sometimes it's, it doesn't even have to involve a uh, a child who requires um, who requires uh, care, but sometimes it just can be the mom working at all, and there's like so much mom guilt um, that is uh, that is leveled onto mothers for for just simply working. What, was that your experience at all, or was your experience different? I think it was both ways. So the mom guilt comes in two forms. So it's uh, from others that you may hear comments from. Uh, where, you know, how can you be working while your child is in this situation? Um, another is the guilt you put up on yourself because 
sometimes when I would go to work, I would be, um, that guilt is there naturally. I mean, it's like that for new moms. Uh, when you go back to work, you have this mom guilt and you're like, oh man, I, you know, I've got this little baby at home and I need to, I feel like I should be at home. And you're kind of torn in right. both ways. But uh, luckily, Alhamdulillah, the way that, um, you know, and I mentioned this to you too before, but like my work was very supportive. Right. So they didn't, um, they, they were fine whenever I had to go to the hospital. I would take him to the hospital and I could work from the hospital. Um, I didn't have to be there five days a week. I could be there for just teaching time. So they really were uh, extremely supportive in something I'll never forget. And I'll always appreciate uh, because that time it, it, it was a support, you know, they're like, no, just continue working. We'll help you out. Right. Especially because I think like uh, in in this particular case, you could also feel like a bad employee in some sense because you're like, you know, I'm not giving in my best, but they sort of by the employer accommodating the person, uh, they make you feel like, no, it's okay to be a full person. It's okay to have um, obligations outside of outside of the university. Yes, yes. I think they were very, um, very nice. And honestly, that took a little bit of my guilt away. But I really did try. I felt like I did my best. I wasn't taking advantage of the fact that they were allowing this for me. So, um, so, you know, there'd be times in a hospital room where we'd be just sitting, he'd be watching TV, and I'd have my laptop out and I'd work. Right. So it was, you know, it was, it, it worked out in the end, Alhamdulillah, where, you know, it, it just, it, in Chicago, it did. And and how did you, did you, or did you at all, respond to community members or family members or just random people intruding in on your life and saying, how could you be working through this? Oh, uh, well, I'm the type of person that doesn't respond <laughs> to stuff <laughs> like that. I, um, it's sort of in one ear out the other, um, yeah. because I know what I'm going through and that person who's saying it to me doesn't, you know, doesn't know. And so, um, so it, it didn't necessarily bother me. I'd kind of be like, oh, you know, I got to do what I got to do. Right. But again, if it was taking away time with Rayan that, that I needed to be there, then I wouldn't be working. Right. Right. Because Ran was number one. And so I had to, uh, so Ran was here and then everything else surrounded his care. Yeah. So everything else was secondary. Yeah. But and I knew that. So, I mean, if, you know, nobody's going to, you can't see that when you're. Yeah. So it, it, you're saying it didn't impact you at all or impacted you some? Their no, I think what impacted me more was my own mom guilt. guilt. I yeah. see. Yeah. But in retrospect now, looking back, um, when things have sort of uh, gotten into a routine, do you um, do you see an upside to working through it all? Yes, um, I do. And the reason I say that is because I it was a it was a distraction and, you know, from uh, what I was seeing on a daily basis. The work um, was a it, distraction. The work was a distraction. Yeah. So yeah. like, you know, if you're sitting in a hospital room for weeks at a time, you're, you know, the laptop, the work that you're doing um, really takes away from that. Otherwise, I think like 
I, I, you know, it's hard. I think people would go into depression or something of that nature where you're just kind of sitting there and you're just thinking about what's happening, what's going to happen to this child, what's next. And, uh, and so it was in, in a way it helped me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, sometimes I, sometimes when I get overwhelmed and, or, you know, other women in academia that I know get overwhelmed, we still can't imagine, um, for some of us, not for all, but for some of us, we still can't imagine leaving it because for some of us, the work provides some degree of sanity, some intellectual, you know, stimulation so that we have our own projects. We have our, um, own intellectual projects that we are taking part in outside of our, uh, familial relationships, familial obligations and communal obligations. Um, So yeah, so for me as well, like I do, I do feel like the work, um, the work provides an opportunity to, to I don't know, exercise my brain in a different way. I guess you know. Yeah, from the normal, from what you're doing at home, it's just, it's it. You know, for me, it was definitely, um, it was uh, effective. And then even you know, it helps my outlook. So if I'm a a little bit, you know, if I was more of a positive, talkative person, that also benefits Rayan because Rayan would see that in me. Right, right. And I mean, if I was sitting there moping and, you know, crying and upset, which happened, obviously, yeah. several, several times. I mean, that I'm not saying that didn't happen. It happened. But he would see the side of me working, talking on the phone, uh, you know, with meetings or whatnot. And, and I think for him, that was good to see that normalcy. Because right. he was already in such a an abnormal situation, right, for a child. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. I I know that through this journey, at some point, you moved to St. Louis. Somebody who's lived in Chicago their entire life, worked in Chicago, got their PhD in Chicago, and then all of a sudden, you moved to St. Louis. Why St. Louis? Uh, St. Louis. Because this is where in the Midwest they uh, have pediatric lung transplants. So, with Rayan's treatment, you know, because um, uh, he got sick again when he was two and a half years old, and that was a very aggressive treatment, uh, which, which I think led to his, um, you know, his lungs becoming damaged due to the treatment because his lungs were perfectly fine. And eventually they told us that he would need a lung transplant. And so, um, so it's, uh, St. Louis is one location. Uh, Texas is another, California is another. So St. Louis was the closest, uh, to Chicago. And so we had to move to be put on a waiting list in 2009 for, for Rand to have a lung transplant. Wow. So you uprooted your entire life and then moved to a new city um, for to be eligible for for the list, essentially. Yeah. So we have to be close to the hospital. So if these lungs become available, we need to be in, like literally within the vicinity. I think it's like a certain mile yeah. uh, limit. So you and and you have to be there. Um so that's what happened. I mean, it was over the course of a weekend that we had to leave Chicago and uh, come to St. Louis. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that must have been a pretty hard time waiting for lungs to, for, for, for Rian's number to come up on the list uh, for pediatric lungs. 
Yes, yes. It was six weeks. We waited six weeks. Oh, man. And so I know that after you get your, um, well, I don't know, actually, but uh, all my knowledge comes from completely ill-sourced um, television shows. But um, but from what I've seen on TV, which probably isn't true, but after transplants, the person has to be super careful as well. Um, yes. So what does that entail for Rayan now and for you? Well, well, right after transplant, it's like you're living in a bubble. So prior to transplant, he was on oxygen. He was on, you know, we had to carry these tanks around and this and that. So he had to adjust to, it, it's almost like kids, and they explain this to us, kids are addicted to these tanks. Like they feel like um, they're going to suffocate without them. So he had to have it around even though there was no oxygen coming through those tubes. Um, so it was an interesting after like that we had to deal with for a little bit. Um, and then he had to have, um, you know, obviously a lot of medicines, um, a lot of care. He had specific anti-rejection drugs that he takes till this day, morning and night. Um, so 7.30 a.m., 7.30 p.m. And there's a lot of medications he takes in the morning. In the evening, he has a few, like four or five that he takes. So it's it's all, um, the aftercare was a lot. Um, again, to get to understand what this was, what transplant was, um, and to adjust to it. But, but alhamdulillah, we did. You know, Ansar and I. Yeah. And so, um, so it's not like you have this massive crisis, the last... Uh, last a significant period of the child's life of the family life but it's continual care that Rayan and 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 you and your husband have to then make sure that there's a regimen set up for the rest of his life yes so he'll be on these medicines always and um so i mean he has to see different doctors he has to see a for example, um, because sometimes it could impact the heart. So maybe a cardiologist, maybe an endocrinologist, a pulmonologist, obviously. So um, we have to manage these many appointments that he has. Right. While both of you are also working, also managing two other children. Um, so through all of this work, all of these circumstances, do you ever sometimes look back and feel sort of resentment about uh, whether your career has suffered because of lack of support from people? Well, no. Um, you know, in hindsight, I, I had a career. Otherwise, I, you know, I would have resigned. If, um, like, before transplant happened, I was in Chicago. They had offered me an uh, from an on-campus to an online position. And again, that was very supportive. So it wasn't a lack of support. It was definitely very supportive. And I um, then uh, accepted that position to just try it out, see how it was going with working from home and technically a hospital at that time. And it, you know, it worked out. It, and I'm still doing a lot of online. I do, you know, sometimes I go to campus or I do some traveling and this and that, but that's about it. So, I mean, uh, resentment with career, I think it, it worked out. Sometimes you do miss, you know, going and teaching in an actual classroom, but I've done that as well here and there. Uh, but the online really helped me because without it, I, I wouldn't have a career. So this online was offered to you uh, as an accommodation for, for the situation that you were in? 
Yes, because that time they were opening up, they, they had positions. Um, uh, when was it? So like I would say November of 2009, September, October, something like that. And um, and I had said, you know, the situation is arising where Rayanne will need lungs. I'm going to have to move. So I'm planning on resigning. So eventually this came up and they offered this to me and they said, you know, how about moving into the online college of education faculty position? And this was at a previous university I worked at. And uh, I said, yes, you know, let me try it out. Let's see how it goes. It was all brand new, but, um, but, you know, it works for a person like me who has uh, different responsibilities. I have another son, young son, and he has his activities and whatnot, but that's, that's kind of normal for a lot of moms, but um, with Fran's situation, it really works out with all of our, the things that we have to do. Right, right. And so, you know, I think the fact that you were even given that option and that option sort of, sort of settled you into this um, new routine that you're in, what would you like looking back and also just looking at your present life, what would you want chairs of departments or folks in university administrative roles to keep in mind when they're dealing with uh, faculty who are primary caretakers of folks with, with uh, caring needs? That I feel like they should be empathetic. I feel like they should understand, um, they should be flexible, allow that flexibility for that person. Um, only because I think they'll, it'll benefit them to understand because if you stress out, if you say, no, this is, you know, demand, you know, this is what we expect of you. You should be here, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you don't work with them there, that's going to cause them more stress, which would just lead to, you know, it could lead to burnout. It could lead to that person resigning. What now it could lead to, you know, in effect that you're not working productively in a quality manner. So I, I think, having that empathy really helps. I had uh, worked with uh, this vice president of academic affairs, again, at the previous university. And, um, you know, I, I came, went to him later and I just said, thank you for all your support in helping me out and understanding when I was on campus, you know, you don't have to come in every day. And then eventually uh, moving over to the online position. And he said, well, well, I, I had to understand because uh, you know, what if it were my child? So having um, him said, say that really, um, it was very impactful. It was very, um, like you felt like you were valued and you appreciated where you worked, who you worked for, et cetera. So I think that understanding that empathy really needs to be there. And I think it just needs to be built into the system. Right. Yeah, I think like this point of being built into the system is kind of important because, uh, uh, you know, sometimes if we need to take time off for our familial obligations, we often think like, okay, who do I call to cover me right now? Like in 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 my class to class teachings, I'm like, who can I call? And then I'm thinking, oh my god, uh, you know, that person also has a lot of familial obligations, and I'm adding this on to theirs, or my chair is already um, uh, over over. Uh, or spread, um, like, you know, uh, um, and they they have too few faculty members to cover too many sections uh, that are capped too high. And I think the way that uh, sometimes academia is going is hiring more contingent faculty, hiring more um, uh, 
adjunct faculty instead of hiring those same people as full time, uh, having lower caps. And um, so I think like this idea of being built into the system where the system accommodates faculty as opposed to um, as opposed to us asking them, <laughs> as right. if we're, you know, like, please do us this favor, you know, so it shouldn't feel like that. Yeah, like going to a friend of yours and saying, can you please cover my class? I have this emergency happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, instead, I, there should be something within the system that allows that allows us to uh, to uh, that to take place, especially on a temporary basis. I mean, I know that many universities have. Um, sick leave and uh, family sick leave as well. So I think those kind of measures are um, are, are quite helpful um, if they're instituted right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So because I mean, I, it helped a person like me, it did. But I do, it didn't, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, were there other moms in situations that I met at the hospital? And yeah, they had to resign because that wasn't an option for them. So they had to, you know, because of the going back and forth and and uh and usually i did see the moms doing this so yeah and that's the other thing that you know with the mom guilt um moms are made to feel guilty if they're not present um like 24 7 at the foot of the bed but dads are sort of like almost put on a pedestal for managing quote-unquote managing it all working and managing a child um uh, that needs care in that time so um, so yeah, the the labor of care oftentimes, not oftentimes, I would say most of the time, ends up disproportionately falling on on women, um, and that's kind of sad as well. Yeah, I I do think that, but again, in in that area too, my husband was it was teamwork, both of us. He didn't get the option to work from home and do that that type of stuff like those other moms I mentioned, but. Um, Anytime he was home, he was in the care of Rayon. So it was very, very hands-on. It wasn't like, I'm tired, I can't do this. Um, you know, he's he's honestly like the hardest working person I know. And he just, he he stepped up, you know, to the plate. <laughs> he, he did what he could. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really, um, I felt blessed. Uh, at the time, mashallah, say yes. Shout out to Ansar um, yes. <laughs> right, Thank you so much, Nargis. I mean, this is such, um, you know, I really admire you. I admire your family. Mashallah, say uh, both you and your husband manage everything um, uh, with, with so much grace. And you have raised very beautiful, uh, thoughtful, kind sons. Um, and, and, uh, and that's to be admired as well. Um, and thank you for sharing your story. Um, I hope it helps people uh, who are going through something similar. I hope so too. And I'm glad I shared it. I think that, um, I think we should have more of these open conversations um, as opposed to hiding it. And, you know, maybe it'll help others within our community, outside of our community. Um, So, so I've always been kind of, like I said earlier, I've, I've been an open book about this stuff and, you know, Alhamdulillah, Rayan is doing well, and um, he's going to school, so. Mashallah. It all works out, yeah, mashallah. Hey, thank you, Nurgis. You're welcome. Thank you, Saba. Hey, assalamu alaikum. <laughs> assalamu alaikum. <laughs>